ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. This is Roger Ebert with an audio commentary on Casablanca, the winner of the Academy Award as Best Picture, a 1942 film that is probably on more lists of the greatest films of all time than any other single title, including Citizen Kane, because it reaches all the way from the cineasts who take movies very seriously to people who just like to see a good film. This is one of those films that even people who don't like black and white films like, even people who don't like old films like, even people who are not familiar with Humphrey Bogart films have seen this one. There was a time when college students could recite every word in a Bogart film, but that time has long passed, and yet Casablanca has survived that time to become one of the most universally admired films ever made. In fact, I don't believe I've ever seen or even heard of a single negative review of Casablanca. The movie came out at exactly the right time. It was released in 1942 as America was entering into the war. And indeed, the original play that it was based on called Everybody Comes to Rick's, the play by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison, arrived at Warner Brothers and was read by a reader on December the 8th of 1941, which would have been the day after Pearl Harbor. Certainly it read differently then uh, than it would have read a week earlier. When I think about the kinds of movies that make me cry, that, that make tears come to my eyes, I usually don't think about sad films. Uh, the sad films I sort of just look at. It's, it's movies that are about selflessness, about sacrifice, about humans who believe in the good of the human race that sometimes move me. And that's why Casablanca still gets to me after maybe 50 different viewings. Because there isn't really a single bad character among all of the leads. Certainly the Nazis are bad, but among the main characters, even Claude Rains as the police chief is, is basically a good guy. And most of the people behave not out of selfish self-interest, but out of their own hopes that they can help the free world to win against the Nazi menace. Here's one of the opening shots. You see that man there in the sky is real, and then everything else is a painted backdrop until we wipe into an actual street. And that street was on the back lot at Warner Brothers. It had been used just a couple of weeks earlier for the filming of the Desert Song. During the war, there was a great deal of constraint in terms of money that could be spent on sets, on paint, on, on nails. Nails were in short supply, on costumes, on film. And so studios recycled not only their sets, not only their props and costumes, but even sometimes their actors. As more and more actors went off to war, they had to borrow actors from each other in order to fill out their casts. Now, this announcement is interesting because since it's a top-secret announcement, you kind of wonder who he's announcing it to, but you're not supposed to ask things like that because basically uh, what he's doing is giving the audience information. And now we see the police uh, dragnet on the streets of Casablanca. And as Pauline Kael pointed out in talking about this movie, the fact is that it benefited enormously from the presence of large numbers of European uh, immigrants who were in Hollywood at the time and who were able to populate uh, the streets of Casablanca. Uh, she points out that if there had been a lot of Hollywood extras talking with phony European extras, it wouldn't have had the same effect that it has here when we listen to this man, for example, who is obviously speaking English with an accent uh, that is his own. Hollywood, of course, by 1941-1942 had become home to thousands of refugees from Europe, most of them Jews who were fleeing from Hitler. 
and it was a great pool for Hollywood to draw on in casting this film and other films. And on the wall we saw Marshall Bataan, the head of the Vichy government that was collaborating with the Nazis, and this is the first time right here that we hear uh, the Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem that's going to be a theme throughout the film. Liberty, equality, and fraternity, but then down to the palace of justice, which is offering anything but. In Vichy-controlled Casablanca, French Africa controlled by the government that was collaborating with the Nazis. Now here once again, there's something about the crowd scene that's all the more effective because these don't look like the usual extras from central casting. They look like people who might have fled from Europe and have found themselves in Casablanca uh, at this time in history. The uh, sets, of course, uh, can actually be glimpsed in the background of other Warner Brothers pictures. And when I was on the Warner Brothers lot in the late uh, 1960s, this Casablanca street was still standing. God, this place is full of vultures, vultures everywhere, everywhere. The movie has serious undertones, but also comedy is in this scene where he finds that his wallet has been lifted and later we'll find out more about the underground of thieves and uh, uh, people with larcenous intent who live in Casablanca. This is an interesting shot because it's so obviously artificial. It's a model airplane going really at a very unlikely angle. Uh, if you look at the people looking up at the plane and then look at the plane again, you find they probably couldn't really see it, at least not there or not like that. And it's convenient, of course, that it goes right across Rick's Cafe American as a model before a real airplane lands at Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles. The use of the foreground cut out there and uh, three or four people in costumes turned this airport into a foreign airport, a convincing one. And we see now the Nazi officials arriving in Casablanca and being welcomed by Claude Rains, who is the chief of police and who will be one of the key figures in the play, a man who is at least apparently or ostensibly loyal to the Germans, although we will find out a great deal more about him later. The the movie was directed by Michael Curtiz, who was a Hungarian immigrant who was one of the most productive directors at Warner Brothers. Uh, in the decade of the 1930s, he produced 45 films for the studio. He worked on all kinds of pictures and all kinds of genres. He was a warhorse. Uh, he was a technician who, according to his son in later life, remembering him, said that he, he never wanted to take a shot just for the sake of a shot. The shot had to be motivated by the action. He didn't like cameras that moved on their own or moved for reasons that didn't have anything to do with what they were photographing. He wanted every single moment of his movie uh, to seem to be a record of what was happening in front of the camera. And as a result, curiously, there are very few shots in Casablanca that are memorable as shots. If you look at a movie like Citizen Kane, you can see all kinds of shots that you can talk about in terms of Orson Welles' uh, camera technique, uh, the way that he uh, cuts uh, from uh, Merry Christmas to Happy New Year when it's a 25-year flash-forward, for example, uh, from one character to another. Uh, but in Casablanca, you don't see shots like that. You see shots that seem to be devoted entirely to telling the story. And now we see for the first time another one of the uh, key characters in Casablanca, the piano player, uh, played by Dooley Wilson. 
Dooley Wilson, who got his first name, his nickname, Dooley, because he played Irish characters in whiteface in vaudeville in Chicago before coming out to Hollywood uh, to get this role. And incidentally, Dooley Wilson was a drummer, not a piano player. He couldn't play the piano, and you can clearly see throughout the movie that he's not really playing the piano, but his, his, his singing of As Time Goes By and his presence in the movie as Rick's best friend is crucial. It gives Rick somebody to confide in, somebody who's known Rick from the old days and uh, can really probably have, uh, could supply the mystery of uh, what Rick was doing before he came to Casablanca, something that people speculate about very much. Ironically, one of the few decisions that Hal Wallace, the producer of the film, made that he later recanted on and that he thought was wrong was early on he thought maybe Sam, the piano player, should be a woman and not a man, but Wallace quickly corrected himself. And indeed, Hal Wallace, who produced this film, is generally considered to be the key creative force behind it, the person who had more to do with its success than the director, than the writers, certainly than Jack Warner, the studio head. It was Hal Wallace who supervised every single detail of the production. This is our first glimpse of S.K. Sakal, known as Cuddles. He was given the nickname by Jack Warner, the head of the studio. Popular character actor in Warner Brothers Pictures, at the time, and has more screen time, oddly enough, than either Peter Lorre or Sidney Greenstreet in the film, even though we always think of them uh, very quickly when thinking of Casablanca. He was apparently in real life a cuddly man, too, a very nice man who was playing a character much like himself here as the maitre d' of Rick's Club. And this is Rick's entrance, the first time we see his signature first, then his hand, then his chess game. Bogart himself uh, played chess. He liked it better than poker because you couldn't cheat at it. And now the first shot of Humphrey Bogart, who became a star with Casablanca. He had been in Warner Brothers Pictures uh, for the previous decade, uh, sometimes as the third gangster, sometimes as the second gangster, working himself up to the first gangster. He said at one point that he settled a lot of his arguments in his early career with a little revolver in his hand. But now in Casablanca, he's given for the first time a role that will make him an A-list star, a major star for the rest of his life. Like this, you're very much mistaken. Excuse me, please. Hello, Hello Henry. Henry. Your cash is good at the bar. What? Do you know who I am? I do. You're lucky the bar's open to you. This is outrageous. I shall report it to the angry. You know, Rick, watching you just... Here's our first glimpse of Peter Lorre, who's just established for a second there. He'll be important later. Uh, before Bogart was cast in the role, the studio seriously considered George Raft. There was also, of course, folklore that Ronald Reagan uh, had been cast in the role because Warner Brothers sent out a press release saying Ronald Reagan would star in Casablanca. But the studio knew at the time the press release went out that that was false because Ronald Reagan's deferments had run out and he was soon going to go into the Army. The studios in those days frequently would send out announcements that various of their stars were being considered for various of their projects uh, simply in order to keep their names in the news. And the, the factoid that Ronald Reagan was going to play Rick is false. He was never seriously considered for the role. Now you have Peter Lorre, the Hungarian emigre who became famous in Germany, playing the child murderer in M, one of the great film performances of all time. He was a friend of Bogart's off-screen. Now here we have the introduction of the whole business of the letters of transit, these two legendary pieces of paper allegedly signed by General Charles de Gaulle that would allow someone to get out of Casablanca. 
letters that would be invaluable for the refugees who had fled to Casablanca from Europe and were now trying to get uh, to a free land, hopefully to the United States. The funny thing about the letters of transit is that even when they were in the original play, Murray Burnett, the co-author of the play, kept waiting for somebody to question them, and they never did. And the letters made it all the way through the film and into the final cut and onto the screen and right down to today without ever making the slightest bit of sense. Hitchcock would have called them a MacGuffin. A uh, MacGuffin in the Hitchcock universe was whatever it was that everybody wanted, and it didn't matter what it was as long as it was wanted. The mystery of the letters being signed by General Charles de Gaulle is that, of course, they would have been worthless in Vichy-controlled Casablanca, Vichy, the puppet government of the Nazis. But de Gaulle, who was based in London by this time, was the head of the Free French, and he was dedicated to the overthrow of the Vichy government and to the overthrow of the Nazis. Don't be afraid of that. Please keep them for me. Thank you. I knew I could trust you. We're living in a time when, uh, for a lot of people, cinema history seems to begin with Star Wars. Uh, a lot of younger viewers are not too interested in old movies. They're not interested in silent movies. They don't like black and white movies, and yet they make an exception for Casablanca. And I think one of the reasons people like the movie so much is because the people in it are all so good, especially Rick and Ilsa, and in his own very twisted and corrupt way, Claude Rains as the police uh, chief. That's your right, Ogarty. I am a little more impressed with you. Now here you can see pretty clearly that Dooley Wilson is not really playing the piano. Say, who's got trouble? We got trouble. How much trouble? Too much trouble. Well, now, don't you frown. Just knuckle down and knock on wood. Who's unhappy? We're unhappy. How unhappy? Too unhappy. Uh-oh, that won't do. And the insert shot, Michael Curtiz, making sure that we notice where the letters of transit go. You'll notice now that the background of Rick's place is darker than it was in the establishing shot earlier, and this might have had something to do with a memo that Hal B. Wallace, the producer, sent to Arthur Edison, the cinematographer, after seeing early dailies. He felt that Edison was putting too much light into the club, which was revealing it as a set, and that if he had more darkness and shadows, it would have a more documentary look. Indeed, there you can see uh, shading on the face of, uh, of Bogart. And uh, here, darkness in the foreground, darkness in the foreground here, and darkness in the background, a little light in the middle, making it look more like uh, a real place rather than all evenly lit as it might be uh, in a more conventional movie or on television. We've now had the entrance of Sidney Greenstreet, the fat man, the man from the Blue Parrot, the number one wheeler dealer in Casablanca. What an extraordinary career this man had. Born in England, a comedian as a young man, he came to America, worked in Shakespeare in the 20s, worked with London Fontaine in the 30s, found himself in Hollywood, was cast by John Huston in The Maltese Falcon. That was his first movie role at the age of 62. Between this film and 1949, he would make 24 more films. He became one of the greatest uh, character actors in the history of the movie, certainly along with Peter Lorre, who he was often paired with, um, character stars at Warner Brothers, and his career as a movie star began at the age of 62. Here you see him with that little hand gesture indicating that he has taken on some of the local customs, but he does not wear, as he wanted to wear, uh, a local Casablanca costume. Uh, Hal Wallace insisted he wear the white suit and the cummerbund. He didn't want him to look like uh, he was a native of Casablanca, but as if he too had come from outside.
And this scene, which involves the woman that Rick is dating at the time, is in the movie, I think, primarily to indicate how empty his life is, that here is a man who had loved Ilsa, the Ingrid Bergman character, who had had a great love in his life and now has a woman who he really has no respect for, as you can tell here in this dialogue. Sasha, she's had enough. Don't listen to him, Sasha. I'll fill it up. Yvonne, I love you, but he pays me. Rick, I'm sick and tired of Sasha, you. call a cab. Yes, boss. Come on, we're going to get your coat. Take your hands off me. Well, you're going home. You've had a little too much to drink. Hey, taxi. What do you think you are pushing me around? What a fool I was to fall for a man like you. Go with us, Sasha, and be sure she gets home. Yes, boss. And come right back. That kind of laconic dialogue is used by Rick all through the movie. I think it's one of the reasons that he has become such a beloved character. He's the kind of mysterious, sarcastic, aloof detached kind of guy who is all the more interesting because we sense he does have a soft heart inside. And now the first dialogue scene involving Bogart and Claude Rains, great character actor. And some people think that Rains actually gives the best performance from an actor's point of view in the film because he's never the point of any scene. He's always the reactor, the person who is responding to what other people are doing. If he gets a word and it'll be a major Italian victory. <laughs> Now, this plane shot is obviously phony, probably back projection with the two actors looking at it. Uh, audiences in those days didn't mind phony shots like that. They didn't ask for total realism in special effects as they do now. And it serves the purpose of putting a little hope into Bogart's eyes as he looks up at the plane, because, of course, that plane is the way out of Casablanca. Although for Bogart, not the way out, because Bogart doesn't necessarily want to leave Casablanca. He has fled here for reasons that remain private. There's a lot of speculation through the film about his motives, but he never reveals them. The waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. And that's the most amazing explanation possible of why he's in Casablanca. A great line that uh, people still quote. In the cafe, I would like some money. Oh. I'll get it from the safe. I'm so upset, Monsieur Rick. You know, oh, I can't understand. Things like that happen all the time. No, I'm awfully sorry. Rick, there's going to be some excitement. The way that uh, Rick touches uh, Sam, the piano player, on the shoulder there indicates a uh, depth of friendship that is implied throughout the film without ever being made a point of. Possibly escape. I stick my neck out for nobody. For wise foreign policy. We just heard another one of his key lines I'll stick my neck out for nobody, which is the whole point of the movie that eventually, toward the end of the film, he gets uh, to where he can. And now look at this, look at the foreground, the arch, and we are looking now actually through a wall that isn't there into this interior office. It's a way for Curtiz to move his camera very smoothly from left to right without having to cut away to the inside of the office. It allows him to get further back. This great shot of uh, Bogart in silhouette getting the money and passing it back to the croupier. And then we're going to cut in a second now to the entire inside of his office and we see a space that wasn't there when the camera moved earlier in order to show uh, Bogart in silhouette. The walls are moved, the set is uh, manipulated in order to get a very smooth camera movement without any regard to the practical realism of where the walls would be and what the room would look like. It doesn't matter to Curtis and it doesn't matter to us. The subtle kind of fascinating thing about this relationship between Reno and Rick 
is that the two men like each other, and indeed, in a way, they respect each other because both of them understand things that can never be said. Uh, sometimes with a look or with a glance, uh, with an inflection of voice, they suggest that although they are both playing the game of living in Vichy-controlled uh, Casablanca, uh, neither one quite buys into it. It's very dangerous. In fact, it could be deadly for them to admit that to each other or to admit it to anyone. But they both know that they have instincts that don't correspond to the roles they've been assigned in this Vichy-controlled society. Take one. I've seen the lady. I've seen the lady. Reigns is quite the ladies' man in this movie, and one of the problems that the film had with the Breen office, the uh, people in control of morality in Hollywood at the time, uh, was that it indicated uh, in several points during the film that he enjoyed the favors of young women, that he had uh, relationships with many of them. The Breen office even opposed the very suggestion that um, Rick and Ilsa had had what they called a sex relationship in Paris in the flashback that we have uh, later in the film. Uh, people who were not married were not supposed to sleep with each other, and uh, Casablanca kind of miraculously implied a great deal more than it was able to say, so that looking at the film today, we're not aware of how close it was coming to the guidelines of the Hollywood censorship of the time. Yeah, Ricky, you overestimate the influence of the Gestapo. I don't interfere with them, and they don't interfere with me. In Casablanca, I am master of my fate. I am Major Strasswitz here, sir. Uh, you were saying... Excuse me. And there, once again, a sense of comic irony. Uh, as uh, Renault was interrupted in the middle of talking about how independent he is in order to go and see the Major, whose uh, uh, good favor he courts and values. I have already given him the best, knowing he is German and will take it anyway. And S.K. Sakal there with another good line. He gave a good table to the German because he would take it anyway, and so you might as well give it to him in the first place. That's sort of the code in Casablanca. Get along with them, treat them nicely, and maybe they'll be uh, mollified or go away. And now the officer is going to pick up Ugarte, the uh, Peter Lorre character, uh, so they can put on a little show for the major, but as you look here at Rain sitting down at the table with the Germans, notice they're a little taller than he is. They kind of loom over him. It's as if he's more of a supplicator, as if they're interviewing him in order to be sure that he's uh, correct or will give the right answers. Monsieur Ugarte. La partie continue. Yes. Will you please come with us? Now here's this little show that's being put on for the pleasure of the Nazis in which the man with the exit visas is going to be arrested. Pretty lucky, huh? <laughs> Two thousand, please. Two thousand. Thank you. <laughs> Rick won't help him. He sticks his neck out for nobody, and he's carried away and out of the film and is never seen again. Excellent. Range takes his bow. When they come to get me, Rick, I hope you'll be more of a help. I stick my neck out for nobody. I'm sorry there was a disturbance, folks, but it's all over now. Everything's all right. Just sit down and have a good time. Enjoy yourselves. All right, Sam? I like the way here that Arthur Edison, the cinematographer, uses the foreground. He frequently moves behind people 
puts them with their backs to the cameras. That tends to put us into the room more than if we were looking at uh, more formal compositions. Now we have a little four-handed uh, social poker here between the two friends from Casablanca and the two Nazis. And a lot of the dialogue in this scene is basically in code in that everybody is trying to say uh, more than their words actually express. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Unofficially, of course. Make it official if you like. What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. <laughs> Another one of the most famous lines in the film. I was born in New York City, if that'll help you, honey. I understand that you came here from Paris at the time of the occupation. There seems to be no secret about that. Are you one of those people who cannot imagine the Germans and their beloved Paris? Not particularly my beloved Paris. Can you imagine us in London? When you get there, ask me. Rick is right on the edge here. He's not defying them, but he's not going along with them either. He's a master throughout the film with this kind of dialogue that doesn't quite say what the others want to hear, but doesn't quite defy them either. Completely neutral about everything, and that takes in the field of women, too. And now as this conversation continues, let's just anticipate what's going to happen next, which is the entrance into the film of Ilsa Lund, the character played by Ingrid Bergman. This scene, her entrance, her conversation with Sam the piano player, uh, Bogart's uh, return into the frame, the fact that he sees her, never fails to move me. This is one of the reasons I think this is such a great film. There is a sense in which we instantly understand how important these two people are to each other, what history they share with each other, what they symbolize to each other, and how they let each other down. And uh, as often as I've seen the film, I've never failed uh, to be amazingly moved. There's a, there's a sense in which you get a tingle down your spine when something really, really good happens in a movie. I'm talking about a real tingle, not a metaphorical tingle. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen the entrance of Ilsa Lund without really being deeply touched by it. Let's look at the way that Michael Curtiz constructs the scene through a very simple architecture of shots. Here she comes in. She's with Paul Honreid, who is the Victor Laszlo, the underground fighter, the resistance fighter. Of course, it makes no sense that he could walk around freely in full view in Casablanca, uh, controlled by the... Nazis, but he does, and of course, uh, Sam the Piano Man sees them, and look at that expression on his face. He knows that she represents trouble for his friend Rick. Now the camera moves to follow them to a table. The jagged shadows in the background indicating perhaps emotional turmoil. And we've got at least uh, three reaction shots now of people noticing them coming in. And certainly Renault, uh, the policeman, would know who Victor Laszlo was. He might not know who Ilsa Lund was. Excuse me, but uh, you look like a couple who are on their way to America. Well? You'll find a market there for this ring. I'm forced to sell it at a great sacrifice. Indication of the desperation among all the emigres who are trying to get up enough money to get uh, out of America. But... The signal, of course, indicates the free French. And now Laszlo knows that he is talking to a comrade. The shadow in the background over her head turns out to be Raynaud, a very interesting way of introducing him into the scene. Such a bargain. But that is your decision? I'm sorry it is. Monsieur Laszlo, is it not? Yes. I am Captain Renault, Prefect of Police. 
Yes, what is it you want? Merely to welcome you to Casablanca. And just to repeat, there's, there's really no practical reason why the prefect of police would welcome Laszlo to Casablanca since, from what we know about Casablanca, he would be arrested on sight. Uh, there are certain logical fudges like that in the movie that we just kind of allow it to have. You're very kind. Won't you join us? Ingrid Bergman, a radiantly beautiful woman. I once went through this entire film, A Shot at a Time, at a film festival with Haskell Wexler, the great cinematographer, who pointed out how carefully she was photographed, usually with the left side of her face, which she felt was the good side, and uh, with shadows on the side of her face, on her cheeks, and on her forehead to make her look thinner and to diminish the high forehead, which uh, was perhaps considered too prominent. What a fool I am talking to a beautiful woman about another man. Uh, excuse me. Ah, Major. Mademoiselle London, Mr. Leslie, may I present Major Heinrich Strasser? Haskell Wexler also talks about the cinematography of the film in Round Up the Usual Suspects, the wonderful book by Al Jane Harmitz, which is a history of Casablanca. talks about the love with which uh, Bergman was photographed, a gauze, a filter used in order to soften her features somewhat, and also certain tricks that had to be used. Given her size, she was a full five foot nine, probably at least two inches taller than Bogart. The studio press releases claim she was five foot seven, claim Bogart was five foot nine, but it just wasn't that way at all. And um, she wrote in her diary, according to the Harmon's book, that uh, Bogart was built up by sitting on pillows or standing on boxes and so forth to look taller than she was. She was um, quite a tall woman, very striking. She had a way of being able to look down as if frightened of things that she didn't really want to think about that was very touching. Been in difficult places before, haven't we? shadows here, concealing their faces, concealing the forehead of the free French collaborator. The slight move in to her face as Laszlo leaves, and we know what she's thinking. She's thinking, I know Sam, and if Sam is here, Rick has to be here too. Could I see it again? Yes. Monsieur? Champagne cocktail, please. I recognize you from the news photographs, Monsieur Lasso. The concentration camp one is up to lose a little weight. We read five times that you were killed. Henry is, I suppose, technically the hero of the film, but he's never really inspired very much admiration for me because he's so humorless and so correct. I always had the feeling that if he survived the war, he would probably wind up very happily ensconced as the official in a totalitarian government. Colin Cale said that this movie cast him as a stiff forever. And I guess in a way she was right. He is so impossibly good, so heroic, that in a way he doesn't engage our sympathy. We, we instinctively want uh, Ilsa and Rick to stay together. Even though Rick is a drunkard who sticks his neck out for nobody, and Laszlo 
is a patriot. Nevertheless, it's Rick that we like. Very well, mademoiselle. How's the jewelry business, Berger? Uh, not so good. May I have my check, please? Too bad you weren't here earlier, Monsieur Laszlo. We had quite a bit of excitement this evening, didn't we, Berger? Uh, yes. Excuse me, gentlemen. My bill. No. The nervousness of the free French guy who wants to get away the moment the prefect arrives. And now this is the sequence that I'm talking about. I'd like to see you again. It's been a long time. Yes, ma'am. A lot of water under the bridge. Deliberately noncommittal, Sam is. Some of the old songs, Sam. Yes, ma'am. She smiles. She likes him. She looks down. And then up. Where is Rick? I don't know. I ain't seen him all night. When will he be back? Not There's something about her face, about her eyes, about the way that she looks in his face for an answer that is so touching. Oh, he never... Well, he's got a girl up to the Blue Parrot. Goes up there all the time. Sam so clearly trying to throw her off the scent. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. You bad luck to him. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. And there you have the, the great line. And of course, no one in the movie at any point ever says, play it again, Sam. I'll hum it for you. And as the first notes play, we cut again to her face as she asks him to sing it. Her face is so ineffably sad and tender and nostalgic. And looking down, she looked down <laughs> about as good as any actress in the history of the movies. Just a the fundamental things apply as time. Of course, the story about As Time Goes By is fascinating. It was the song in the original play. And Max Steiner, who was brought in by Warner Brothers to compose the music for the film, didn't like it, said he would compose a song of his own. But by the time he was ready to do that, she had cut her hair for her next role and so couldn't be in this scene. So they were stuck with the song. Now, Bogart, of course, hears the song. And the way he stops and looks at her, and she looks at him, and that chord of music, and how quickly he puts his stool up to get the piano out of there because he knows that this is going to mean trouble. Rick, and here he is, Mademoiselle. May I present... Uh, Hello, Elder. Hello, Rick. Oh, you've already met Rick, Mademoiselle. Well, then uh, perhaps you also... Uh... This is Mr. Laszlo. And Rick, of course, would know who Laszlo was. Well, he has a great deal about Rick in Casablanca and about Victor Laszlo everywhere. Won't you join us for a drink? Oh, no, Rick. Well, thanks, I will. Well, the president... So Steiner, because he couldn't get rid of As Time Goes By, did the next best thing and based the entire score of the movie on it, according to the Al Jean Harmitz book. The reason that he wanted to write his own songs, fairly simple, if he wrote a song and it was in the movie and it was a hit, he would get a lot of royalties from it. It would be a good way to showcase a composition of his own. But because her hair was cut for her next film, and she couldn't reshoot this scene with a different song in it, uh, they stayed with it. You see, Steiner, like most composers in those days, didn't see the movie until it was all shot. So that he, he didn't come in early and write, and, and, and write a score to begin with or uh, begin working on it. 
and uh, make suggestions to the director. He was brought in when he was needed to score the picture after the picture was photographed, so by then it was too late for him to get, as time goes by, out. Ironically, because there was a strike on in the entertainment industry at the time this movie came out, Dooley Wilson was robbed of what would probably have been an enormous number one hit parade uh, single of As Time Goes By, and the song that was on Your Hit Parade, a weekly uh, radio program uh, for many weeks, was a version recorded several years earlier by Rudy Valley, so that the, the version that appeared in this movie was not the hit song at the time the movie came out. Very puzzling fellow this week. What sort is he? Oh, I really can't say, though. I saw him quite often in Paris. Tomorrow at 10 at the prefect's office. We'll be there. Good, Good night. night. Good night. The exteriors of Casablanca and of the Café Mercant here are fun because uh, we keep seeing that spotlight going past, and there's no need for it. What are they looking for? People on the streets of Casablanca, they're likely to find them. The spotlight is designed entirely to give atmosphere, wartime sort of atmosphere, and indicate how close the airport is to Rick's place. The spotlight continues to look. You would sort of assume that since the spotlight is shown as um, being on the tower of the airport, it would be aimed up at the air as a beacon to aircraft rather than down to the ground. Now the deep shadows, the spotlight moving in the background, a few key lights to pick out Bogart's white coat. All right now. Ain't you planning on going to bed in the near future? No. You ever going to bed? No. Well, I ain't sleepy either. Good. Now have a drink. No, not me. The composition and lighting here very much in the tradition of film noir a genre that was just being invented as Casablanca came out. More or less contemporary with movies like The Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity. Film noir named by the French to indicate an American genre of good people who get involved in bad situations, usually because of their own weakness. Sam. Yes, boss. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? What? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. They're asleep all over America was a line that was very important at the time the play was written and the screenplay was written because America had not yet gotten involved in the yeah, war. In all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Just a little something on my own. Oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, don't. You played it for her, you played it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember. If she can stand it, I can. And this dialogue here really, I think, underlines the depth of uh, Rick's hurt and disappointment. He loved this woman, and he feels that she abandoned him, that she betrayed his trust. And the push into a close-up makes the shot more subjective and more personal. As he draws on his cigarette and exhales, 
the smoke somehow leads to a foggy fade out and we are back in Paris and then an extraordinarily phony back projection shot in which they magically go from the Champs-Élysées to the country in one second. But that's how memory works. There was originally dialogue uh, for this uh, montage of romantic scenes, and uh, how Wallace was very displeased when he found in looking at dailies that Michael Curtiz had cut it. He wrote a very sharply worded memo criticizing him for that, but of course, Curtiz was right. All you need is to see these two people carefree and in love. And uh, for that matter, the dialogue they do have in this scene was very carefully scrutinized by the censors because it seemed to imply that they might have slept with each other. Here comes a famous line. Here's looking at you, kid. Now, according to Harmitz, that line may have been contributed by Bogart. Ingrid Bergman was learning to play poker, and her English wasn't too good, and uh, Bogart was giving her lessons not so much in poker as in poker lingo, and it taught her to say, here's looking at you. Uh, the line appears in no drafts of the screenplay. Here we have this situation where he's made to look a little taller than her. He didn't like that shot at all because he felt he was a very bad dancer. He hated to dance in the movies. Frank, for your thoughts. In America, they'd bring only a penny. <laughs> I guess that's about all they're worth. Well, I'm willing to be overcharged. Thank and notice how she kind of slinks down in the seat, and he's apparently built up on pillows. Uh, to conceal the fact that she was a good deal taller than a couple of inches taller than he was. Why, there is no other man in my life. Uh-huh. The it. fact that she's in a nightgown would seem to indicate that perhaps they had slept with each other or might sleep with each other or conceivably uh, could sleep with each other in some alternative universe, but not in this film because they were not married and so they can never be seen in connection with the bedroom. This is about as risque as the film could get. newsreel footage. The Nazis march into France. These montages and all of the second unit montages in the film were directed by Don Siegel, later became a very important uh, Hollywood director on his own. These shots, of course, on the Moroccan street, which was redressed to look like a French street. Français, Parisiens, les troupes françaises ont abandonné leur position. Les Allemands seront demain dans la capitale. Well, nothing can stop them now. Wednesday, Thursday at the latest, they'll be in Paris. Richard, they'll find out your record. It won't be safe for you here. I'm on their blacklist already. <laughs> now, one of the reasons why the studio argued that it would be okay for Rick and Ilsa to be in love with each other is that at this time, of course, she believes her husband, Victor Laszlo, to be dead. Now, this is the first scene that was shot in the movie. They didn't shoot the scenes in order. So this was the first day of shooting. No one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory What's extraordinary is that um, Bergman and Bogart do have chemistry. 
They have chemistry, and the way you can see it is to notice Bergman with Paul Heinrich, and they have no chemistry. Whatever chemistry is, you know, it's this mysterious word that Hollywood loves to use and nobody ever defines. You can feel it, but you can't, you can't explain it. This sort of takes the sting out of being occupied, doesn't it, Mr. Richard? This was Dooley Wilson's fifth film. He told his wife, if I can get four films under my belt, I'll feel safe enough in Hollywood to buy a house, which he did. Franzosen, Einwohner von Paris. Franzosen, Einwohner von Paris. Hört aufmerksam zu. Die deutschen Truppen stehen vor den Toren von Paris. Eure Hauptstadt ist ohne jegliche Verteidigung. Euer Heer ist in Auflösung begriffen. Seid unbesorgt. The German here, not subtitled, but in a second, Schill translated for him, which also means that the audience can understand what's being said. They say they expect to be in Paris tomorrow. Now, a lot has been said about Ingrid Bergman's alleged confusion over which of the two men she was supposed to be in love with. Uh, there's a legend about this film that the ending wasn't written until the last day, and so she never found out until the moment of shooting who she was going to get on the plane with. That's not quite true. This scene is not complicated because, of course, her character thinks her husband is dead, and she's in love with Bogart. But uh, Algene Harmitz was able to uh, determine through studying the shooting records that uh, many of the key scenes were shot after Ingrid Bergman clearly knew that she was going to be getting on the plane with Paul Honreid. Of course, that still doesn't answer the question of who she's in love with. She's supposed to be in love with Honreid, but she is in love with Bogart. And so the confusion that she often spoke about in terms of her character is an emotional confusion rather than a factual confusion based upon the actress having had information withheld from her. I left a note in my apartment. They'll know where to find me. Strange. I know so very little about you. I know very little about you. Just the fact that you had your teeth straightened. <laughs> well, be serious, darling. You are in danger, and you must leave Paris. No, 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 no. We must leave. You notice there just a second ago the way when he turned his head up, her head turned up to follow it. She has that way sometimes when looking at a man of seeming to want to follow the smallest movement of his face or of his eyes, as if she's studying him for some clue to her emotional satisfaction. You see it again there, to her emotional stability or security. And looking down again. a little too far ahead. Well, let's see. Uh, what about the engineer? Why can't he marry us on the train? Looking down is kind of like looking into the past or looking into doubtfulness or uncertainty. Hey, what's wrong, kid? And you notice here that Bogart looks a little younger and a little more cleaned up than he does in Casablanca. Mystery still unresolved as to what he's doing in Paris or why he came from New York or what he was in his earlier life. Shouldn't get away. I mean, she paints his face with her eyes in this scene. She does the same thing with Cary Grant in Notorious. She doesn't just look at him. She looks up and then down and away and then back. Even after kissing him, she still looks for reassurance, looks again to be sure he's there. She had that really touching vulnerability, that uncertainty. Another example here of the way that Hollywood recycled sets during wartime. This is a train station that was also used for Now Voyager, a just completed 
Warner Brothers picture starring Betty Davis. And here's Sam who comes out in the rain to bring in this message. It's very nice here, the relationship between uh, Sam and Rick, a uh, relationship of equals who respect each other. Uh, not extraordinary today, but a little bit ahead of its time in 1941 and 1942 for the African-American to be uh, best friend and confidant. And the symbolism here is pretty clear to see. The letter is crying. It's as if her tears are being expressed visibly on the page. And now a famous uh, continuity error, his raincoat is dry. Flashback is over, the song is still playing. There was a tenderness in Sam's regard for Rick that can come only from a man who saw what happened in Paris. Now, Ilsa enters again, still wearing the simple white dress that we saw her in before. There was an interesting memo from Halby Wallace to the costume department. They originally want her in some kind of a formal gown with a flowing cape and... He said that the refugees from Europe got out with only the clothes that they were wearing in many cases, and so certainly that would also be true of a man from uh, the French underground who was fleeing. It's funny about your voice, how it hasn't changed. I can still hear it. Richard, dear, I'll go with you any place. She is uh, occupying the strong axis of the picture here with the light on her. He is seen in darkness on the left, in shadow, over his shoulder so that the composition makes it her scene. He is locked in his bitterness. He is locked in that left side of the screen kind of negativity and defeatism. He's on the left here even in the over-the-shoulder shot. Shadows on his face, the irony in his voice, his posture as he leans over his drink. She supplicates. He's looking down at her, she's looking up at him, as if begging her. She just come to Paris from her home in Oslo, at the house of some friends. She met and once again here, this is one of the shots that uh, Haskell Wexler was talking about when we went through the film a shot at a time that time, the, the modeling of her face, uh, the way that the shadows sculpt her cheekbone there, bring down her forehead. The slight gauze a filter or a um, uh, softening effect the veil, which kind of gives her a Madonna-like appearance, the glistening tears in her eyes. They could sometimes get that with glycerin. Sometimes the actresses and actors could cry. Mister, I met a man once when I was a kid. It always began. And that line there, of course, is a reference to a body house, a brothel, and it was questioned by the Breen office, challenged by Wallace, who said, I don't know what you mean. There are others in between. Aren't you the kind that tells? But you see, he's being very hurtful here, talking about her as if she is a prostitute, as if she's slept her way to the present moment, and that she can't abide. 
She walks away, surrendering him to his despair. And here is a demonstration of what uh, Algene Harmons is talking about when she says that having accepted the song in the movie, uh, Max Steiner then used it as the basis for the entire score because as time goes by, begins as piano, then picks up an orchestra, then turns into an entirely different kind of song as background. And as events alter their reality, the music changes into a more harsh-sounding melody. He's able to take uh, the simple song, as time goes by, which had never really been a hit uh, before this movie came out, and use it to evoke every kind of emotion and passion and mood that he needs throughout the film, sometimes using it in a counterpoint, of course, with the Marseillaise. The fact that Bogart was able to show uh, such vulnerability and sadness in the movie I think was very important to uh, the success of the film and to the fact that it made him into a star because um, in earlier films, he was frequently the wise guy. He had that kind of Warner Brothers insouciance, that George Raft, Jimmy Cagney a kind of detachment as if he were above the material or wiser than the material or uh, tougher than the material. And here, the material is tougher than he is, and it beats him down. I'm afraid not. My regrets, monsieur. Well, perhaps I should like it in Casablanca. And mademoiselle? You needn't be concerned about me. Is it all you wish to tell us? Don't be in such a hurry. You have all the time in the world. You may be in Casablanca indefinitely. Or you may leave for Lisbon tomorrow on one condition. And that is? You know the leader of the underground movement in Paris, in Prague, in Brussels, in Amsterdam. In all see, the, the interesting thing about this dialogue is, is that his duty would not be to see that he stayed in Casablanca, but probably to put him in chains and ship him back to Germany to be thrown into a concentration camp or a prison. The thought that the head of the Free French could walk into the office of a Nazi in Casablanca and have this relatively uh, official interview is one of the movie's fictions, probably based on the fact that the play was written before so much had happened and the screenplay was written before America got into the war and until the situation in North Africa had become solidified. These are kinds of questions that the audience doesn't have occur to it and shouldn't have occurred to it. And in fact, I don't even know why I brought it up because in a way you have to have a suspension of disbelief here to accept this entire strange Casablanca situation in which the Nazis and Rick and Laszlo and everybody can coexist with these letters of transit that are floating around. Obviously, if the Germans didn't want somebody to leave, a piece of paper wouldn't be enough to allow them to let them out, especially a piece of paper, as I mentioned before, signed by General de Gaulle, but probably a piece of paper signed by anyone because they would simply change the rules. They would never let Laszlo out, one of their most important enemies, simply because he had a piece of paper with a signature scribbled on it. And, of course, what they've just been told essentially by uh, Reynaud is that Agarte is dead and uh, with him have died the exit visas and the possibility of getting out. I'm making out the report now. We haven't quite decided whether he committed suicide or died trying to escape. Are you quite finished with us? For the time being. Good day. Undoubtedly, their next step will be to the black market. Excuse me, Captain. Another visa. Once again, this implication that Renault will uh, exchange favors for sex. But just done just that subtly with the little look in the mirror and the straightening of his tie, but nothing more blatant than that because the censors were watching like a hawk. Once again here, the very convincing because quite real European accent. Um, 
Algene Harmitz came up with a statistic that of all of the featured players in Casablanca who get screen credit, only four were born in America. All of the others were born overseas. And uh, it provides a kind of an unstated atmosphere uh, that's effective for the film. We believe these people are um, refugees. Another glimpse of this couple, uh, the woman who is willing to sleep with anyone to get her husband an exit visa, and that's Joy Page, who was, in fact, Jack Warner's 17-year-old stepdaughter in her first movie role. Here we have the visible ceiling, the fan, and here we get the next big scene involving Sidney Greenstreet, a man who combined size with an immense presence, with self-assurance. He had a way of narrowing his eyes to indicate a kind of buried agenda. He wears the little fez there to sort of put himself halfway into French Morocco. And kind of a mirror here of uh, Bogart, once again on the left, slumped, depressed, obviously the morning after the night before for him. Rarely wears a hat in the movie. How Wallace sent out a memo. He didn't want him to wear a hat a lot because the hat made him look too much like the gangsters he played in the 30s. But they both wear hats here, one indicating a man who has made his accommodation with local custom, the other who was hanging on to his life as before. And once again in the background, this ubiquitous couple who seem to be wandering everywhere in Casablanca trying to find an exit visa. Oh, take me into confidence. You need a partner. Excuse me, I'll be getting back. Morning. Senor Ferrari's the fat gent at the table. You will not find a treasure like this in all Morocco, mademoiselle. Only 700 francs. You're being cheated. The use of the hat here to bring her face in and out of shadow was an interesting device that was frequently used by the cameramen in connection with the costume designers in order to mirror emotional changes on a face. We have a special discount of 100 francs. The story had me a little... Here this heavy bar of shadow falls across both of them, putting them in a sense in constraints or behind bars. Shadows and light were often used in order to put people inside some kind of a visual net. Reasonably sober. I don't think I will, Rick. Why not? After all, I got stuck with a railway ticket. I think I'm entitled to know. Last night I saw what has happened to you. The Rick I knew in Paris, I could tell him he'd understand. But the one who looked at me with such hatred. I'll be leaving Casablanca soon and we'll never see each other again. We knew very little about each other when we were in love in Paris. If we leave it that way, maybe we'll remember those days, not Casablanca. Not last night. Did you run out on me because you couldn't take it? Because you It's often said that Casablanca is a perfect film, but that would mean it had no flaws at all. And I can think of a few flaws that it has. It has some laughably bad special effects, including that airplane that flies over the city at the beginning of the movie. It has that rather tortured line of dialogue by Bogart about destiny taking a hand. These are very small flaws. The, the fact is, not just that the movie has very few mistakes or very few flaws, but that it has so many great moments, so many peak moments, so many great lines of dialogue. Howard Hawks wants to find uh, a good movie as a movie that had three great scenes and no bad scenes. This movie has a lot more than three great scenes. Certainly when we have the duel of the two national songs, that is a scene that brings tears to the eyes of people 60 years later. Certainly the airport scene at the end. Certainly the first time that Ilsa and Rick meet each other. 
Certainly when Sam is trying to console his boss in the middle of the night and Rick is completely inconsolable. Certainly the humor that comes out of the Sidney Greenstreet performance and out of the Claude Rains performance. Claude Rains, a completely amoral man who is always looking to see which side of the toast his butter is on. All of these elements are just perfect in their own way, and they add up to a film that has no dead patches, no moments when we're looking at our watch and wondering when the next good scene is coming along. It's all very tightly wound. There isn't any waste in it. Get out and join you. Yeah. But, Victor, if the situation were different, if I had to stay and there were only visa for one, would you take it? Yes, I would. Yes, I see. When I had trouble getting out of Lille, why didn't you leave me there? And when I was sick in Marseille and held you up for two weeks and you were in danger every minute of the time, why didn't you leave me then? I meant to, but something always held me up. I love you very much, Elsa. <laughs> Your secret there's something about what Kale says. He is so stiff, such a stick in this film. He says that as if he's reading it off a card. Rick has never had to say he loves her because he obviously loves her. He says it, but it seems to be because it's expected of him to say it. And once again, these bars falling over them. A bar that could make you think of a crucifix, could make you think of the free French symbol, could make you think of jail cells but very obviously planned uh, by the cameraman. The shadow of the parrot on the wall behind. Once again, this motif of the bars. In every shot, no matter where they're standing, the bars of shadow fall on them. Yes, the Dugati left those letters with Monsieur Rick. Rick. He's a difficult customer, that Rick. One never knows what he'll do or why, but it is worth a chance. And across the back of his coat, once again, the palm shadows. Bye. Thank you for your coffee, senor. I shall miss that when we leave Casablanca. It's gracious of you to share it with me. Good day, Monsieur. Monsieur, good day. And a little bit of business involving the fly swatting. Not in the script. Piece of business, perhaps contributed by the actor. Good luck. I better be going. My check, I have to warn you, sir. I beseech you. Payoff on the earlier <laughs> pickpocket gag. And the popular songs in the background sometimes comment on the action. If I could be with you an hour tonight is probably what Rick is thinking. You are getting to be your best customer. Well, drinking. I'm very pleased with you. Now you're beginning to live like a Frenchman. There's some going over. Your man gave my place. And this is the scene that leads up to the duel of the two songs. Watch on the Rhine and the Marseillaise. One of the great scenes in movie history. Begins with dialogue. Little background music. <laughs> Serves me right for asking a direct question. The subject is clear. Once again, these two men talking in code. Neither man has the slightest regard for Yvonne, uh, Bogart least of all now that he has been reminded of the true love in his life. Sasha! Well, Strange 75. Put up a whole row of them, Sasha. Starting here. Notice the body language of the bartender who is less than thrilled to be serving Rick's former girlfriend with a Nazi. 
In French, he said, why are you with that German? What did you say? But you can't repeat it. What I said is none of your business. I will make it my business. And notice that the others look at the fight, but it's Rick who gets involved. The remarkable thing is that he doesn't like disturbances and he wants people to lay off politics. And in just a moment, we're going to have the dueling anthems, uh, which would be political to its very core. Here Renault does the very same thing that Rick does when talking to the Nazis. He doesn't quite tell them what they want to hear, but doesn't quite tell them what they cannot permit themselves to be hearing. A kind of a, an ironic, detached, uh, non-committal choice of words. With that possibility, are concerned about more than Casablanca. We know that every French province in Africa is honeycombed with traitors, waiting for their chance, waiting perhaps for a leader. A leader? Like Laszlo? Mm-hmm. I have been thinking. It is too dangerous if you let him go. It may be too dangerous if you let him stay. I see what you mean. And so Carl is so happy to greet two people from the old country in their own language. Thank you, Carl. Für Frau Leichtag. Thank you, Carl. And für Herrn Leichtag. Carl, sit down. Have a brandy with us. To celebrate our leaving for America tomorrow. Oh, thank you very much. I thought you would have... A scene that would have meant a lot to the people playing it since they had all immigrated to America speaking nothing but English now. So we should feel at home when we get to America. Very nice idea. <laughs> the fractured English there reminds me of many stories about Michael Curtiz, who also fractured English. Uh, even after 25 years in America, his English was not so great. And David Niven actually titled his autobiography, Bring On the Empty Horses, which was Curtiz's way of saying, bring on the horses without riders. Oh, beautiful in America. <laughs> How's Lady Luck treating you? Oh, too bad. Daring sophistication there in the dialogue. This screenplay, which was based on the, the original play, which contained most of the characters and some of the key situations, then was written by the Epstein twins and uh, then rewritten by Howard Koch and then rewritten by the Epstein twins and then various other writers on the lot had a hand in it and even uh, Halby Wallace uh, wrote some of the dialogue himself. This screenplay, which was a team effort uh, by people who in many cases were not even communicating with each other, miraculously... Uh, came out in the end to be a wonderfully unified and consistent and stylistically elegant piece of work. And I, I guess that the person who should get most credit for that is Hal B. Wallace, the producer. He was the person responsible for most of the major good pictures that came out of Warner Brothers during his tenure. And uh, Jack Warner, the head of production, who liked to take credit for pictures and who grabbed the best... Uh, picture Oscar for Casablanca on Academy Award night before Wallace could get to the stage, um, made very little contribution to this picture. In fact, it's often said that his um, only major contribution was that he thought George Raft uh, should play the star instead of Humphrey Bogart and almost everything else in the picture, uh, how Wallace had his hand in in one way or another, including actually acting as the kind of ultimate editor on the screenplay. Uh, that was doubly so since Michael Curtis, the director's command of English, was not perfect, and um, he often relied on others, uh, including his wife and including uh, Wallace, to advise him on uh, niceties of screenplay style and dialogue construction. Casablanca is one of the greatest examples of the Hollywood studio system in which a team produced a movie. Andrew Saris, who is the American advocate of the auteur theory, the theory that says that Films are made by the directors, and directors place a personal stamp on them. 
said that Casablanca was the most decisive exception to the auteur theory. Michael Curtis, who made a lot of movies, was a very efficient director with a very uh, direct and dramatic visual style, but there is not a stylistic consistency between his films that allows you to say, as you look at one of them, that's by Michael Curtis. By contrast, for example, you can look at 30 seconds of any film by Hitchcock and be pretty sure that it's by Hitchcock. It was an assembly of extremely skilled craftsmen and women who worked together at a time and place when a screenplay had, by lucky chance, been written that was just perfect for the moment, and they all did their jobs as well as they could, and the result was a masterpiece. Honoré looks away uh, just then as Bogart says that line about Paris and Happier Days. It's as if he doesn't fully comprehend that these two people knew each other or had a relationship. It's kind of uncertain uh, exactly how much he knows. The man playing the croupier there is Marcel Dalio, a very famous French actor who starred in Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion and played the aristocrat in Renoir's great picture, Rules of the Game. As a refugee to America, he was reduced to a bit part in a movie like this. His career, of course, interrupted by the Nazis, as so many were. You tried 22 tonight? I said 22. Having played to the young girl that there's really nothing he can do for her, he helps her husband win a pile of money. And, of course, Carl knows exactly what happened, and in a way, so does Reno. When we go to the movies, we identify with the characters we see. That's why we go to the movies. We have a voyeuristic experience. We have an out-of-the-body experience. The screen is more real than our thoughts are at the moment we're looking at the film, and we place ourselves uh, in the place of the people on the screen, and when they behave nobly, it makes us feel noble. When they are sad and when they've lost love, we feel sad. We can identify with that. And so by the end of the film, I think the people have behaved selflessly and heroically and with a great deal of courage, and that gives us courage to think that we could behave in that way. So by identifying with the strong, good people in the movie, we feel good and that's why we like it. May I get you a cup of coffee? No, thanks, Carl. Monsieur Rick. One of the aspects in the background of this film is the fact that it is so strongly anti-Nazi uh, at a time when that was politically uh, advisable, but the Warner Brothers studio was anti-Nazi way before any of the other studios in Hollywood had ever really taken that position. Uh, Harry Warner was making speeches against the Nazis in 1936. Warner Brothers was the first studio to pull its distribution uh, organization out of Nazi-controlled Europe at a time when other studios were still trying to make money there. And um, the Warners were even carried in some FBI dossiers as premature anti-fascists, which was kind of a euphemism for uh, left-wingers. In other words, they were against the Nazis before it was fashionable to be against the Nazis. Uh, Warner had... Um, pledge campaigns that his employees could contribute to in order to uh, help the war effort and to fight the Nazis. Uh, 
He helped to sponsor many, many refugees who came to America, writers, actors, and others who were put on the studio payroll at a stipend of a few dollars every week, just enough to live on. The Warner Brothers uh, record in the anticipation of the Nazi horror was really the best in Hollywood. And so this film, of course, almost inevitably was a Warner Brothers picture. You know what it means to the work, to the lives of thousands and thousands of people. I'll be free to reach America and continue my work. I'm not interested in politics. The problems of the world are not in my department. I'm a saloon keeper. My friends in the underground tell me that you've quite a record. You ran guns to Ethiopia. You fought against the fascists in Spain. What of it? Isn't it strange that you always happen to be fighting on the side of the underdog? Another piece in the jigsaw puzzle of Rick's past. He fought with the leftists in Spain. It's pretty clear that he's left-oriented, that he's a good guy who has decided that it just doesn't pay to be a good guy anymore. Presumably, as we just learned from this dialogue right now, it's his disillusionment with Ilsa that has led him to his present position. My wife. Yes. Now we have the Germans playing the Watch on the Rhine, or singing the Watch on the Rhine. And this scene in which Watch on the Rhine is drowned out by the Marseillaise was actually in the original play and was kept all the way through all the drafts of the screenplay. One of the great dramatic emotional scenes in motion picture history. She kind of knows her husband will do something. Somebody is always asking somebody to play something in Rick's place. Now listen carefully to the orchestration here, and then I'll have a word to say after the scene is over. tears glistening in her eyes one of the people who was present the day that this scene was shot said that they looked around and half of the extras had real tears in their eyes and it was realized that most of these people were singing out of their own experience as refugees from Nazi Germany that the singing of this song to them inspired emotions that were far beyond those of a motion picture scene when I try to puzzle out to myself why the scene is so effective I think maybe it's because Everyone we see on the screen, including those we barely glimpse, is as moved as we're supposed to be. And what I wanted you to notice in the orchestration there is that uh, toward the end of the Marseillaise, uh, it's a full orchestra that's playing. And that was a memo also by Hal Wallace uh, to Steiner, who said, don't just use the little band in Rick's place. It starts out with a little band, but as the Marseillaise takes over from Watch on the Rhine, I want you to bring in a full scoring orchestra in order to give it more body and weight. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. <laughs> 
I've always thought that uh, there was a certain amount of mutual enjoyment between Rick and Renault there when he says that because they both know exactly what he's saying. To accept for one destination to return to occupied France. Occupied France? Mm -hmm. Under safe conduct from me. What value is that? You may recall what German guarantees have been worth in the past. There are only two other alternatives for him. What are they? It is possible the French authorities will find a reason to put him in the concentration camp here. And the other alternative? My dear mademoiselle, perhaps you have already observed that in Casablanca human life is cheap. Good night, mademoiselle. Garçon, la What happened with Rick? We'll discuss it later. That oblique shadow there, crushing down out of the ceiling, the darkness of the interior. Now, one of the things that Harmitz points out in her book is that during this scene, when this scene was shot, Ingrid Bergman already knew how the movie was going to end. So that when she looks at Henry here, she already knows that he is the person she's going to be getting on the airplane with. The underground meeting tonight. I must. Besides, it isn't often that a man has a chance to display heroics before his wife. Don't joke. After Major Strass's warning tonight, I'm frightened. To tell you the truth, I'm frightened too. So shall I remain here in our hotel room hiding? Or shall I carry on the best I can? Whatever I'd say, you would carry on. This lighting is so wonderful on her face, and they use tiny little key lights in order to make her eyes sparkle. But no intention of selling them. One would think if sentiment wouldn't persuade him, money would. Backlighting on her hair, face in shadow, and always this angle. This was the side of her face that she liked. Yes, he said, uh, ask your wife. And you got a glimpse there of a uh, full face. And Haskell Wexler, when I went through the film with him a shot at a time at that film festival, said that she didn't photograph very well straight on. She photographed much better in three-quarter profile or in full profile. And uh, also she has that wonderful angle. You see it again there, looking down. And now he finds out something that he should have known long ago and that he must have started to suspect from the moment they walked into Rick's place. Yes, Victor, I was. I know how it is to be. Loved. Both of them backlit, so their faces are mostly in shadow. Is there anything you wish to tell me? No, Victor, there isn't. I love you very much, my dear. Look at her eyes there, and the tears in her eyes, glistening out of that darkened face. Very precise camera work and lighting in order to get this effect. It doesn't happen by accident. Good night, dear. Good night. So that we really read the tears. strings of the romantic music subtly segueing into more brassy military sounds for the high angle shot. As he goes off to the meeting with the underground. Shadow used very effectively here. Backlighting. 
whole right side of the screen in total darkness. And now, once again, a kiss is still a kiss coming in as the Rick and Ilsa theme, in a sense. Two weeks, maybe three. Maybe I won't have to. A bribe has worked before. In the meantime, everybody stays on salary. Thank you. Smoking was such a useful device in all of these movies. It gave the actors something to do, gave business, gave motion in the screen, gave motion to close-ups, gave visual interest, allowed body language to happen, allowed moods to be expressed. Good night, Mr. Rick once again enters this office, this time from the other side. Finds Ilsa. Look at that patchwork of light and shadow on her face and behind her, indicating her conflicting emotional state. The framing makes her much shorter than him. Connected by any chance with the letters of transit. Seems as long as I have those letters, I'll never be lonely. You can ask any price you want. And here, once again, watch the way her eyes study his face. It's one of the gifts she had as an actress that made her reaction shots more dramatic. See there? Look at that. And once again, the, the shadows on the side of the face. If she were lit in a flat way, all illuminated, she would seem to be more straightforward and less complicated. Diagonals in the background, breaking up the shot. Please listen to me. If you knew what really happened, if you only knew the truth. I wouldn't believe you no matter what you told me. You'd say anything now to get what you want. You want to feel what sorry? complex lighting like that does, jagged shadows, uh, interruptions of the light, is create emotional turmoil or imply it at the same time. You're a, you're a coward and weakly. Notice the softness of her mouth there. The, the voice is harsh, the words are harsh, but the mouth is soft and forgiving. I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good spot for it. Rick's shell is so hard, he will not allow it to be penetrated. All right. I tried to reason with you. I tried everything. Now I want those letters. Get them for me. I don't have to. I got them right here. Them the push into a close-up, very rarely used in this film. Cinematic language for the dawning of a very dramatic realization. And when we cut back to Bogart, right after it, he was closer too. Closer shots, more subjective. Longer shots, more objective. Movement in, more involving. And then he moves in when he moves toward her. Even though she has the gun, the framing of that scene indicates that he is taking the upper hand. Stay away. I thought I would never see you again. That you are out of my life. The way she is able to relax her mouth as she speaks as if she's losing emotional control. Very subtle. You can appreciate what she's doing there if you see her in another scene where she's got very fierce resolve and her lips are more firm and uh, precise. 
And now all of these lines of shadow, ups and downs and backs and forths and crosswises uh, to indicate their emotional turmoil. The swelling of the music. You knew how much I loved you. How much I still love you. As time goes by, comes right in, and the incessant light. His head in shadow, half his body in shadow, because he's emotionally and morally conflicted. They needed him in Prague, but the Gestapo were waiting for him. Just a two-line item in the paper, Victor Leslie apprehended, sent to concentration camp. I was frantic. For months, I tried to get word. Then it came. He was dead, shot, trying to escape. Bergman said, when she looked at herself on the screen, I look like a milkmaid. And this use of shadow helped to make her smaller. She was not fat, certainly not at this time in her life. She wasn't thin either, but she wasn't fat. It was just that she was large. She was big. His way of protecting me. I knew so much about his work, and if the Gustavo found out I was his wife, it would be dangerous for me and... And for those working with She made her first movies in Sweden, and uh, her big hit was Intermezzo, which was remade in Hollywood and made her a star. Uh, on the screen, she was luminous. I think her best performance of all is in Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. This is certainly just about its equal. To tell you, but I, I didn't dare. I knew, I knew you wouldn't have left Paris and the Gestapo would have caught you, so I... Well, you know the rest. In Notorious, she has the famous longest kiss in movie history with Cary Grant. Their lips don't meet for the whole time, but they're in each other's arms as they go from a balcony to a doorway, and there's a telephone call in the middle of it. And there again, you can watch her eyes as they search and paint Cary Grant's face, looking for clues, trying to read his, uh, the weathers of his heart. Uh, it was a kind of attention she paid to her leading men that created... Uh, an extraordinary sense of, of, of how much she cared or her character cared. I can't fight it anymore. I ran away from you once. I can't do it. She insisted on this short, kind of tousled hairstyle. It was more common in 1941 for actresses to have more elaborate hair. Her argument was that a refugee from Europe would not have time to spend a lot of worry over her hair, that she would want something simple and practical, able to wash and comb and wear. Who's looking at you, kid? And there's that line again. I wish I didn't love you so much. It's possible that Bogart brought it to the film because, of course, the scene where he uses it in Paris is the first scene they shot in the movie. So if he'd been teaching her what to say during a poker game and had used it that day, it would have been very easy then to repeat it as a motif throughout the film. It's significant, in fact, that it turns up in the first scene they shot. Notice how the whole picture has gotten darker now for about the last five or ten minutes. No lights. Well, for one thing, well, there's a light, but you get my point. <laughs> uh, Rick's place is uh, supposed to be closed. So they don't want to attract a lot of attention from outside. Carl, what happened? The police break up our meeting, Eric. We escaped in the last moment. Come up here a minute. Yes, I come. I want you to turn out the light in the rear entrance. It might attract the police. But Sasha always puts out the light. Tonight he forgot. Yes, I come. I will do it. 
This shot is almost German Expressionist, almost Dr. Caligari in all of the shadows and angles, the staircase. I want you to take Miss Lund home. Yes, sir. The Mirror, movie convention for two sides of the same person. Carl must wonder what side he's looking at. He doesn't have all the insights that Rick has. We have to get through a window. Oh, this might come in handy. Thank you. Had a close one, eh? Yes, rather. Huh. Don't you sometimes wonder if it's worth all this? I mean, what you're fighting for. We might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. Now, what of it? It'll be out of his misery. You know how you sound, Mr. Blaine? Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Each of us has a destiny, for good or for evil. I get the point. I wonder if you do. I wonder if you know that you're trying to escape from... Laszlo is such a straight arrow here with his little preaching. Maybe this is a weak point that I have in looking at this movie, my instinctive dislike for him. I know he's the good guy. I know he's the guy I should support. I know that Rick has caved in morally, at least for the time being. But look at his eyes looking at the ceiling there. It's like he's reading the script off the inside of his eyeballs. It doesn't seem as if it's coming from his heart. It's as if the actor himself is saying, this is my noble scene. And look at Bogart regarding him. Look at the absolute frankness with which he sees him and sizes him up and takes his measure. If you look at these two alternating face shots, you see the difference between the two actors. And, and you kind of guess why Bogart is so good. Monsieur Laszlo? Yes? You'll come with us. We have a warrant for your arrest. On what charge? Captain Renault will discuss that with you later. It seems that destiny has taken a hand. And that line, it seems that destiny has taken a hand, has always seemed written to me and therefore weak. Along with a big close-up of the cigarette and the significant look, it's not one of the strongest moments in the film. You might as well let him go now. Ricky, I'd advise you not to be too interested in what happens to Laszlo. If by any chance you were to help him to escape... What makes you think I'd stick my neck out for Laszlo? Because, one, you bet 10,000 francs he'd escape. Two, you got the letters of transit. Now, don't bother to deny it. And, well, you might do it simply because you don't like Strasser's looks. As a matter of fact, I don't like him either. <laughs> What's nice here is that the two men are really leveling with each other. They're both openly talking to each other about the real situation. 10,000 francs. You're not very subtle, but you are effective. I, I get the point. Yes, I have the letters. I intend using them myself. I'm leaving Casablanca. It's fascinating here when two sincere people try to fence as if they were two cynical people. What friend? Ilza Lund. That ought to put your mind to rest about my health. And as he leans in there, the camera leans in with him to emphasize the importance of what he's saying, that he wants to leave with Ilsa. Now, the dialogue in this scene underlines something I was talking about earlier, the fact that just because you have a letter of transit doesn't necessarily mean that they have to let you out. That's a, an interesting point to discuss in connection with this plot. Would Victor Laszlo be allowed out of Casablanca with a signed letter of transit? The chances are he wouldn't. The Nazis wouldn't let him go because just now Rick is suggesting that they might not even let Ilsa go. So the MacGuffin, which is really working overtime in this entire film, is stretched to the limit here. The 
the function of the letter of transit, the validity of the letter of transit, the powers of the letter of transit, all best not thought about in too much detail. That'll give you the criminal grounds on which to make the arrest. You get him and we get away. To the Germans, that last will be just a minor annoyance. The question here is, does Renault know that he's being played by Rick? Uh, if he knows Rick well enough, he may suspect that he's being played. Any woman. I see. How do I know you'll keep your end of the bargain? I'll make the and that's indeed right just what he asked. How do I know you'll keep your end of the bargain? What may tilt him is his thought that Rick would do this because he loves Ilsa. And Renault, as a ladies' man, might believe that romance would trump politics. Let him go. I don't want him around this afternoon. I'm taking no chances, Louis, not even with you. How Wallace sent a memo insisting on a real parrot for the blue parrot, not a fake bird. Should we draw papers, or is a handshake good enough? We enter once again into Sydney Green Street's inner sanctum. For some reason, Bogart always wears his hat when talking to Green Street. The ubiquitous ceiling fans indicating the heat of the desert. And Abdul, Carl, and Sasha, they stay with the place where I don't sell. Of course they stay. Ricks wouldn't be Ricks without them. One of the functions of a fedora hat uh, in the years when they were stylish was to cast oblique shadows across the face of actors, sometimes concealing their eyes, sometimes revealing their eyes. There was another fly. And uh, they could be used uh, very effectively to reflect the moods of the, of the actors who were wearing them. As time goes by, the theme again. He's thinking of Paris, thinking of Ilsa. He has the letters. The high angle shot diminishes him. A small man in a big empty space. Menace in the music. Late. I was informed just as Laszlo was about to leave the hotel. So I knew I'd be on time. I thought I asked you to tie up your watch door. Oh, he won't be followed here. You know, this place will never be the same without you, Ricky. Yes, I know what you mean, but I've already spoken to Ferrari. You'll still win at roulette. And here the camera comes back down to eye level as they walk back, retracing Rick's steps. Where were they? Sam's piano. Says the purpose right. of the high angle shot earlier, I think, to show him isolated and vulnerable. I'm leaving with him. Haven't you told him? No, not yet. But it's all right, isn't it? You were able to arrange everything. Everything is quite all right. Rick. We'll tell him at the airport. The less time to think, the easier for all of us. Please trust me. Yes, I will. And there again, the brim of her hat concealing her eyes as she struggles with the emotions that are going on inside. Hats and cigarettes, wonderful props that uh, are now missed in modern movies. I don't approve of smoking except in the movies. Will you? No, it's all arranged. Good, I've got the letters right here, all made out in blank. All you have to do is fill in the signatures. She's diminished here. Look at her in the background, looking around restlessly. The two men are dealing with her future. And a charge of accessory to the murder of the couriers from whom these letters were stolen. Oh, you're surprised about my friend Ricky. The explanation is quite simple. Love, it seems, has triumphed over virtue. Thank you. Not so fast. The cord as we see the revolver, underlining the dramatic revelation. I have. Sit down over there. Put that gun down. Louis, I wouldn't like to shoot you, but I will if you take one more step. Under the circumstances, I will sit down. Keep your hands 
things on the table. I suppose you know what you're He maintains doing. his style even in the face of a death threat. That later. Call up your watchdogs, you said. Just the same. You call the airport. And let it's me kind of it. almost dizzying to think about how many different sides were changed in the last uh, minute or two of screen time as allegiances shifted, both visible allegiances and implied allegiances. Look at Ilsa there. She hardly knows which way the wind is blowing now. Captain Renault speaking. There were two letters of transit for the Lisbon plane. There's to be no trouble about them. Good. Hello. Hello. My car, quickly. This is Major Stasia. Have a squad of police meet me at the airport at once. At once, do you hear? This airplane is kind of famous in movie lore. It's a little model, and they used midgets walking around it in order to make it seem larger. It was just a one-dimensional cardboard cutout. The... Airport was not the Van Nuys Airport used earlier in the film, but was stage one at Warner Brothers with lots of fog to make it seem larger. There's really nothing back there but fog and a cutout of an airplane and some midgets who are walking around the airplane. And, of course, as always at night, uh, the ground is wet because it photographs better that way. Find Mr. Lazo's luggage and put it on the plane. Yes, sir. This way, don't mind, you fill in the names. Notice the way the camera moves in on her as she turns in her own close-up. And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But Trying to figure out what's going to happen, and she's just found it out. I don't understand. What about you? Famous speech. The plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you last night? Last said night a... we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no one... Now, but... you've got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten. Her eyes on his face. The concentration camp isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid Major Strasser would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have we. We lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. In a very real way, she could never have left with Rick because she'd be leaving her husband to go off with another man, and it was forbidden by the production code. So that the myth that Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was hitting on the plane with is just that, a legend that people have repeated about the movie for 60 years, but which is really not accurate at all. Someday you'll understand that. No, no. Is looking at you, kid. It's not often you get an entire dialogue scene in which almost every line is something that people have been quoting for years. Everything is in order. All except one thing. There's something you should know before you leave. Mr. Blaine, I don't ask you to explain anything. I'm going to anyway because it may make a difference to you later on. You said you knew about Ilza and me. Yes. You didn't know she was at my place last night when you were. She came there for the letters of transit, isn't that true? This is one of the nicest things that Rick does in the entire movie. She tried everything to get them and nothing worked. She did her best to convince me that she was still in love with me. That was all over long ago. For your sake, she pretended it wasn't and I let her pretend. I understand. Here it is. Thanks. 
I appreciate it. And welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. Now the triangulated close-ups of significant looks as the three people try to figure out what has just happened and they begin to accept it. The thing about Ilsa is her fate has been decided for her by Rick. Our question is who does she want to get on the plane with and the answer is it's impossible for us to say or for her to say. Can she leave behind the hero who is fighting against the Nazis or can she leave behind the man that she really loves? No matter who she gets on the plane with, it's the wrong guy, and that's her tragedy, and she has not been the one who was chosen, which is another part of the tragedy. She's been the pawn between these two men whose decisions were both configured mostly by the war. I guess that's the whole idea of the film, that you have to stand above your own feelings when there's a greater cause at hand. And in that case, the feelings of three little people are not worth a hill of beans, etc., which is exactly what Bogart says. As the plane goes, Louis. What was the meaning of that phone call? Victor Laszlo is on that plane. Why do you stand here? Why don't you stop him? Ask Monsieur Rick. I would advise you not to interfere. I was willing to shoot Captain Rhino, and I'm willing to shoot you. Hello. Put that phone down. Get me the radio tower. Put it down. Now, here's a question that I want to ask you as you watch this film. Of course, the police are arriving now, but before the police arrived and before the Nazi arrived, who was there to prevent all four of them from getting on the plane? Why were two letters of transit needed? Were they being checked by the captain of the airplane? Doesn't seem like anybody looks for the letters of transit. So I've always wondered whether it wasn't just a convention that the two men stayed behind while Ilsa and Victor got on the plane. Kind of seemed to me as if, even though Renault might want to stay behind and cook up a fancy story, that Rick could have gotten on the plane with no trouble. Now, I know that's a heresy, and I'm sure you'll say there's somebody on the plane checking for letters of transit, but... I still don't know. Well, Rick, you're not only a sentimentalist, but you've become a patriot. Maybe, but it seemed like... Now, here's the nice little in-joke. He drops the bottle of Vichy water into the garbage. There are a lot of definitions about what makes a movie a classic. One that I like is a movie that I couldn't bear the thought of never being able to see again. And I couldn't bear the thought of never being able to see Casablanca again. It doesn't get old for me. It doesn't get worn down. I know what's going to happen, and nevertheless, when it happens, it still has an effect on me. So for me, that's a classic. Might be a good idea for you to disappear from Casablanca for a while. There's a free French character. And the line we're about to hear now was recorded many days after the last day of principal photography. How Wallace felt there had to be one more line, and he wrote it himself. Here's the line right now. Our expenses. Mm -hmm. Louis? I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And that line was dubbed over. It wasn't in the original scene, written by Hal Wallace. One of the best closing lines in movie history, one of the best movies in movie history. This is Roger Ebert, and when I'm asked for the name of the greatest film of all time, I almost always say Citizen Kane, and that would be my sincere opinion. But if somebody were to say, what is the movie that you like the best, I think that I might say Casablanca. <laughs> 